But uh, Jared, Jared uh, read our sermon text already, but yet we'll be focusing on verses 8 through 14. In about 4 BC, a teenage couple who were betrothed to one another were traveling a 70-mile journey from Galilee to Bethlehem to register for a census required by Octavius, better known as Caesar Augustus. Since Joseph was a descendant of David, he had to register in Bethlehem, the city of David's birth. When they arrived in Bethlehem, they discovered all the guest rooms were occupied. There were many people who had come to register. That explains why the inns were filled. And this lady was great with child. According to God's sovereign plan, this was the very time in which she would give birth. Now clearly this betrothed couple was Mary and Joseph, soon to be the parents of Jesus Christ. And you know, as thinking through this, if God can use a man like Caesar Augustus to fulfill the place of Christ's birth, surely he could arrange history so that a guest room would be available. But that was not God's plan. God's sovereign plan was that Jesus would be born in a most lowly place, in a dirty manger. Jesus would be born in a place where lambs were inspected and wrapped in swaddling cloths for these lambs had to be without spot or blemish, as you'll see later. Since the male lambs, which were once deemed without spot or blemish, would later be sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem after 360 days of grazing in green pastures. And consider this before we move on. Octavius was given... The title Augustus, he was the successor of Julius Caesar. But the word Augustus means supreme, sublime, majestic one. Think of this. He is this Caesar Augustus. God is using him. He's titled with this glorious title. And God is using him. To fulfill prophecy, in particular Micah 5 2. But who is the Augustus or the August one? The supreme August one. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is supreme above all. He is truly sublime. He is majestic, far above all creation. Of course, he's transcendent. Well, getting into verses 8 through 14. I've entitled the message, Celebratory Worship, Joy, and Peace Through the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So you can follow along or read from your own Bible, verses 8 through 14. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there was born 
Or there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling or in wrapped in cloths here in the New American Standard and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. In verse 8, there were shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. This occupation was the lowliest, the dirtiest, the most humble occupation in Israel. Yet in verse 8, we find these shepherds faithfully doing their job, caring for, providing for. But specifically, it's at night, so they were protecting the sheep. And then all of a sudden, in verse 9, an angel of the Lord stood before these shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The very presence of God, the glory of the Lord was all around them, and they were frightened. The King James says, sore, afraid. I've always liked that. But it basically means to be terrified. Terrified. You know, and I can understand that that they would respond in such a way. They were in the presence of God's heavenly messenger and the glory, the, the, the glory, the expression of the Most High was all around them. But in verse 10, notice how this angel of the Lord responds to their fear. The angel said to them in verse 10, Do not be afraid. This was not the time for fear, but for joy. This was a divine promise being fulfilled, a prophecy fulfilled. This was the coming, the promise of the coming of the Messiah, for whom the Jewish people in particular had waited so long. Galatians 4.4, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, speaking of the virgin birth, and it was exactly at the time, at the very moment, at the very second that God had ordained. Born of a virgin. Born of Virgin Mary. Conceived of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus would be born without sin and the Son of the Most High God, truly God and truly man. You see, the angel of the Lord, this heavenly messenger, did not come to bring fear. But he came to bring good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Not all people. We see this in other texts. We see it later in our text. But all the people. The angel is referring to the elect, the chosen. First of all, the elect of the Jews. But we see it's applied later in the book of Luke and in Acts. To Gentiles, all who believe in his son, all who repent and trust him as their saving Messiah, all who in submission kiss the feet, as it were, of this conquering king. This conquering king is being born in a manger, in the most humble, lowly place that could have ever been chosen. In verse 11, this angel explains the good news. And you know something happened when I was when I was typing here the word good news I mistyped and I typed God news 
And then I thought, how appropriate. This is God's news. This is good news because God is good. Right? Well, the angel explains the good news here. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news of great joy was a Savior, a rescuer, a deliverer who rescues from sin and darkness and from this evil generation. But most importantly, one that rescues from the holy wrath of God, his necessary and righteous justice, the just dying for the unjust. As Peter talks about, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, Christ came to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 28. The truth that God in Christ took on human flesh is amazingly profound. It's hard to take in that the transcendent God of heaven took on human flesh, that he was made lower than the angels, that he took on flesh, flesh created by himself. He became one of us. But as amazing as the incarnation is, the incarnation without the cross does not bring salvation. It is profound. It is amazing, but he came for a purpose, and that purpose was not only to live a sinless life on our behalf, but to die on a cross and bear the sins of his own people. We can hear the importance of the cross in Martin Luther's words. No other God have I but thee, Born in a manger, died on a tree. Jesus came in human flesh to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came on a rescue mission to save the elect, to save those who believe. Even his name Jesus means, and you've heard this before, it means the Lord saves. And listen to Matthew 1, 20, 21. And she, he's speaking of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. The same as Yeshua of the Old Testament. It means Yah saves or that's short for Yahweh saves. The Lord saves folks. He rescues, he delivers his people from the penalty of sin. He saves sinners like you and I. We should add to that, although it's not specifically in our text today, that he was Yahweh in human flesh. And I love this correlation between Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3, and Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where we see it revealed in Matthew 3 that John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Yahweh. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 40, the word, the Lord is Lord, all caps, the Hebrew text, it's Yahweh, the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient one. The one that is above and beyond space, time, and matter. He's transcendent, 
He's the creator of the universe, speaking all things into existence and holding all things together by the word of his power. This eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient one in, we find in Christ. We find in the person of Christ, in God's Son, it's revealed. He is Yahweh in human flesh. He took on human flesh, made flesh made from the dust of the earth. He came to save his people from their sins. All who were chosen before the foundation of the world. All who believe in his name. He came to give his life for his own bride. To purchase a bride for himself. Verse 11 again, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice this Savior born in the city of David, born in Bethlehem, is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. Christ or Christos is the equivalent of the word Messiah. Both these words speak of his nature as the anointed, as the chosen, that he or he is the anointed of the Father, which pictured that Jesus was chosen by the Father and set apart for divine purposes. In the Old Testament, only prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. Each of these offices foreshadowed the anointed one to come. This babe born in a manger is the ultimate prophet. This babe born in a manger is the ultimate priest, the mediator between God and man, the one who would offer his own self as an atoning sacrifice for sin. This babe born in a manger is the ultimate king, the son of David, who would rule and reign forever with righteousness and justice. Whereas the name of Christ speaks of his nature, the word Lord speaks of his position. An exalted, a glorious position in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The eternal King who is Savior and Lord to all who believe. He is also the one spoken of by Daniel the prophet. It's a place where the word Messiah is used in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9 verse 26. Then after, it gives us basically the time of his birth. Almost to the day. Daniel 9 26. Then after 62 weeks. And in the context, if you read the preceding verses, it's after 69 weeks. Because there's 7 weeks and then 62 weeks, which adds up to 79 or 483 years. So then... After the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, referring to his crucifixion. Those 69 weeks are 483 years. See, it's weeks of years, not weeks of days. The word week just means seven. It doesn't identify, but it's used of days and of years. But would you believe that those 69 weeks 483 days ended the very day that he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Prophecy. True prophecy. The word of the living God. Now notice verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
How would they know where to find this Savior, this Messianic Lord? What would be the sign? Luke says, you will find a babe wrapped or swaddled in cloths lying in a manger. In other words, wrapped in strips of cloths. Yet how would they find this babe lying in a manger in a feeding trough? Because most every house in Bethlehem would have had their own animals. And they would have had a feeding trough. During the night, as, are these shepherds going to go door to door looking from house to house? be a difficult task, even though it was a small village. I believe the answer is found in part in some historical information that we get in the Mishnah, the Jewish Mishnah, the oral Torah, basically, which tells us that Bethlehem was the village where lambs were raised. Think of this. That's the very village where lambs were raised for temple sacrifice. So these shepherds, were apparently Levitical shepherds. Although they were lowly by occupation, they had the most divine privilege, the most divine responsibility. And although the Mishnah was certainly not inspired, it contains reliable historical information. And this idea makes sense. Since Bethlehem would be the perfect location, only seven miles from Jerusalem, we also need to consider Micah, we saw Micah 5 too, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. But just a little bit before that, Micah 4, 8. Micah writes, as for you, tower of the flock, it's Migdal Eder or Eder. It speaks of, tower speaks of elevation of the flock as if it's referring to an elevated place. And then Ophel, hill of the daughter. The word Ophel is hill of the daughter of Zion. Now watch what it says. Whatever it's talking about, watch what it says. Well, let's wait a minute. We'll get to that in a second. The Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, is the location according to Genesis 35, 19 through 21. It's the location where Rachel died. And Genesis 35 tells us it was right near Bethlehem. It was on the Ophel, that hill that runs. This is actually a ridge, a hill or a ridge that runs from under the temple in Jerusalem to Bethlehem, the Ophel. Micah says concerning this location, to you it will come. To you it will come. What? Yes, the former dominion will come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. This babe lying in a manger is the king of this kingdom to come. He, which is now come now, certainly a spiritual kingdom. He was born in the specific location prophesied by Micah. And understand the context here. When a sheep was ready to give birth, they were taken to a particular place. Here, Migdal, Eder, or Ophel, the tower, the elevation of the flock just outside Bethlehem on that road that led to Jerusalem. When a sheep was ready to give birth, they were brought to the tower of the flock. And when that sheep gave birth to that little 
and it had to be a male lamb. That lamb, born there at the tower of the flock, was examined. They had to be deemed without spot or blemish. And when they were, they were wrapped in swallowing cloths and placed in a feeding trough so that they would not injure themselves until they gained stability. They had to maintain without spot or blemish. Within a few days, they would have that stability and be put out to pasture. And then they had to wait. They had to graze for 360 days, one year. And then they were led to the slaughter, to the temple as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinful man. Maybe this is how the shepherds knew. I don't think they were running from house to house, barn to barn, behind the houses. They knew exactly what this angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord was saying. How profound that the place of Christ's birth pictured that Christ had come into the world as a sacrifice. As the true atonement for sin, he came to give his life a ransom for many, a sacrifice that again, truly and perfectly takes away sin forever. Notice Christ's birth brought rejoicing and praise. That's the response. That when we understand what God has done, that's the response that we should have. And that's the response of this angel and a host of others. Verses 13 and 14, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased or whom he favors. Again, these Levitical shepherds were faithfully protecting the flock. Although shepherding was the most lowly and dirty occupation, these Levitical shepherds had the most privileged responsibility to birth, to examine and raise these lambs and lead them to Jerusalem for slaughter. But all of a sudden, there appeared a multitude in heavenly hosts. A heavenly host is army, in, in essence. Not only had God sent an angel of the Lord to announce the birth of Christ, or birth of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, now a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel. They joined with the angel. And they praised God and said, Glory to God in the highest, heavenly, and on earth. Peace, goodwill to men, or literally, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And I actually, this is very rare, but this is one case in where I like the and I, nothing personal against anybody that uses it. It's not my preference because it's not literal enough. But this is one passage that the NIV got it right. Or I think it's best. I think the New American Standard gets it right too. But the NIV says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those 
on whom his favor rests. That's the idea. In verse 14, we find a brief but transporting hymn. It's a hymn transporting us into true worship. Spoken in human language, yet proclaimed by heavenly messengers. Verse 14, we find synthetic parallelism, where the idea of the first stanza is built upon in the next, or completed in the next stanza or stanzas. That's synthetic parallelism. This newborn Savior would bring heavenly divine glory to a fallen world. That's what appeared that day. From heaven to earth. And that's what happened in the person of Jesus Christ. The light of God has dawned. Glory of God has shone or shone to us. On that very night, the glory of God had shone around them, but God's glory was coming in true peace to a particular people of the earth. It's very apparent that peace has not come to all. We live in a world, as we saw in Psalm chapter 2, that's at war with God. They virtually shake their fists at him. They have no peace. But there are, as we saw earlier, a particular people to whom peace has come. And there's three forms of peace, I believe, in the New Testament. Peace with God, the peace of God, and peace with the saints. The meaning here is peace with God, as we will see. But the other two kinds of peace stem from being at peace with God. The peace that we find in Luke 2, again, is peace with God. Make sure you understand that. Peace with God. That's what he's talking about. It's peace with God to a particular people. Romans chapter 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.15, for he, speaking of Christ, is our peace. Ephesians 6.15 refers to the gospel of peace or the gospel which is peace. It is the good news that believers are at peace with God. We are no longer at enmity with God. You see, all men apart from Christ are at enmity with God. In other words, they're at war with him, just like Psalm 2, they plot vain things, taking a stand against the Lord and his anointed. They take counsel against him. They tear away all moral restraints, determined to go their own way. Yes, there is enmity between God and man. And therefore, we should say there's there's enmity within us against God. Therefore, God is at war with us. He sits in the heavens and laughs. Again, Psalm 2, he holds us in derision. He has anointed his son, the Messiah, the eternal king, to whom everyone will give an account. The people in Psalm 2, remember, just a couple weeks ago, the people in Psalm 2 speak. They take a stand. They're speaking against God, but we saw in verses 4 through 6, not only does God laugh at them, he laughs not because it's funny, but it's a laugh of derision. 
So not only does he laugh at them, he speaks. He has spoken, and he said that he has anointed his son virtually as king. He's the one to whom all will give an account. He is king of kings and lord of lords. You see, we as people may think that we can go our own way and establish our own righteousness, as it were, but you cannot fight against God and win. It cannot happen. You can go through your life pretending like everything is okay, but one day it goes for any of us. If we have not been saved through the blood of Christ, we will stand before him. He is king. He is set his king on Mount Zion. We will give an account. It ought to awaken our hearts. We can't pretend like everything's okay and go through life apart from him. It will cost you dearly. We are at war with God apart from Christ. But more importantly, he's at war with us. But if we've been born again, we who were once at war with God in Christ now have peace with God. The enmity, the war is gone. That state of battle has been taken away. Through faith, we have accepted his terms of surrender. By his grace, we have come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit. This is not a feeling of peace. This is a state. It's a reality to be at peace with God. It's a relationship. It's a state of grace. But peace with God also makes peace of God or the peace of God possible. This is an assurance, an assurance of salvation, but it's also, in many passages, a trust in God in every situation that results in the peace of God. Through faith, peace with God is guaranteed, it's unconditional, but the peace of God is conditional. It involves commands, and we see that in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, or literally, stop being anxious. He's speaking to believers here in Philippi. Stop being anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The commands are in verse 6. We're to stop being anxious, but through prayer, that's prayer that's an act of worship, in essence, supplication, that's making requests, and with thanksgiving, we're to let our requests be made known unto God. That results in the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension, all understanding. And through that, he will guard. That word guard is a military term. It means to build a fort around. He builds a fort around our hearts and our minds. We can't, we're not created to handle everything. We are created to trust him, to turn everything over the Lord, but to do so with, in prayer, through supplication, and with thanksgiving. And the peace of God will build a fort around your heart, and it will build a fort around your mind. You see, the peace of God is not automatic. It requires obedience and trust. 
The peace of God comes when we rest in his sovereignty. It comes when we rest in his faithfulness. And it comes when we rest in his provisions. The peace of God is also the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of being filled with the Spirit. The peace of God, or peace with God, I should say, should also bring peace with the saints. This peace is also conditional. We see it in 2 Timothy 2.22. Now flee youthful lust and pursue what? He mentions four things. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We're to pursue four things, but in particular here, it's applicable to what we're talking about today, peace with genuine believers. But Romans twelve eighteen says that we're to pursue peace with all men. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But I think we could say it this way. We're to pursue peace with all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. If you do not have peace with God through faith, that's the focus here. It's not the peace of God. It's not peace with saints. It's peace with God. So I ask you this morning, are you at peace with God? If you are, it's entirely the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's based upon his person and his work. That we have peace where we're no longer at enmity, no longer at war with God, where we're at war with him and he's at war, therefore, against us. If you do not have peace with God, you have no communion with him. You remain at war with him. You remain outside the veil, separated from his holy presence. You remain condemned because he who believes not is condemned already. God's glory has shown upon the earth in the person of Jesus Christ who took on human flesh. Peace with God has come to those, all those he favors. Yet if you've if you've been born from above, I hope you have the peace of God. But I can guarantee, according to the authority of God's word, you're at peace with him. You may not feel like it at times, but you're at peace with him. And you have koinonia, you have communion with him. You have accepted his terms of peace. You have repented and believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Therefore, you are at peace with him. You're no longer at a state of war. We have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, as John talks about in 1 John. So we have come to our communion time today. Because we're at peace with God, we have fellowship with Him and His Son. And we look back, we look back to the cross see the cross. Yes, he took on human flesh, but he came for the purpose of dying. He came for the purpose of taking our place and going to the cross. 
So the manger without the cross does not save. But through the blood of the cross, we're brought into a relationship with God, to communion with Him, and that we rejoice. This Christmas Day, more importantly, the Lord's Day, but this time set aside, almost certainly not when Christ was born, but this time, what a joy it is on this Christmas Day. We do, and we should, celebrate His birth, but it's because of what He came to do. It's because of what he accomplished through which man who is at war with God apart from Christ is saved. We are brought up out of a pit, so to speak, as the Bible says, and placed on a rock. We have life through him. We have forgiveness of sins. We have communion with him. I hope you have that communion this morning. If you do, you're welcome to participate with us this morning in the communion service. As I say every time, because I think it's important, we know what the bread represents. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken, Hebrews, that was broken, through whom, just as the veil of the temple was broken, that we have access to the throne of God, to his Shekinah glory, as it were, to his very holy presence. The wine represents the blood of Christ. The wine, wine. We, we offer wine and grape juice because wine is a picture in the Old Testament in particular and revelation of the judgment of God. But it's also a picture of abundant blessing. And so here's the point. Here's why it's so important. Jesus took our judgment that we might have blessing. He took, he took on himself the wrath of God that we might have abundant blessings. And yes, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So I challenge you this morning, if you have been born again, worship with us. Remember the Lord's death. Rejoice in him. For through him, we have life. We have communion with the very God of all creation, the God that made us. Koinonia, real fellowship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and I challenge you to examine yourself to be 100% sure that you can partake in a worthy manner. Consider any sin. Consider your heart that you're focused. You're not distracted. You're not thinking about anything else. You are focused on what Christ has done for you. In Jesus. In Je- Do it in Jesus' name. That's right. Sorry. Let's pray.